Welcome to the Resourceful HDR podcast. I'm Sally Purcell, and in this podcast, I explore high degree research, HDR, career and employment experiences, how individuals have made career decisions, navigated transitions, and helped others to build a career. In Australia, HDR usually includes Master of Research, PhDs, and professional doctorates. I hope you enjoy this podcast. This episode was recorded via Zoom, so I apologise for any sound issues caused by problems in connectivity. My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Daniel Bateman. After completing a Bachelor of Arts at the University of Sydney in 1992, Daniel worked in a variety of jobs as a storeman with David Jones and Grace Brothers, as well as other positions in hospitality before travelling overseas to the USA and Europe and then around Australia. On returning to Sydney, Daniel took up a job with the New South Wales Department of Sport and Recreation as a swimming teacher, which led him to undertake a Graduate Diploma of Education, primary, in 1997 at the University of Wollongong. Following the grad debate, Daniel relocated to New Zealand in 1998 to take up a teaching position at Rua Pataka Primary School in Auckland, where he taught for 12 months before returning to Sydney where he taught at Holy Family Primary School in East Granville from 2000 to 2006, and then at St Agatha's Primary School at Pennant Hills. Realising that primary teaching was not the best fit, Daniel decided to return to university to complete the Bachelor of Marine Science at Macquarie University in 2009, and this was followed by a PhD in Biological Sciences in 2011, graduating in 2017. Daniel's PhD thesis was Direct and Indirect Impacts of a Non-Native Predator, Foraging by Carstenus Minas on native bivalves of Southeast Australian estuaries. Daniel now works as the curriculum coordinator at Parramatta Marist High School, where he was formerly the head of mathematics, statistics and data, and he couldn't be happier. So Daniel, your pathway to the PhD is an interesting one. Could we start back when you first finished your HSC? And could you talk about how you decided upon a Bachelor of Arts? What were your majors and how did you choose them? It's a long story to tell you the truth. I hope you've got a little bit of time. I remember being in year seven and looking up at the boys in year 12 and they were all sort of, we were at an assembly and, and all the boys in year 12 were up on these top balconies. And I remember thinking, I don't know what I want to do, but I'm sure that by the time I get to year 12, I will know what I want to do. And I got to year 12 and I still didn't have a clue. And I, I had been pretty lucky in that my mum had sort of said, look, do what you find interesting. And so um, one thing that I had found really interesting when I was a kid was um, Indiana Jones. And obviously he was an archeologist. And I thought, well, that'd be pretty cool, you know, doing archeology. span And so I, that, I basically thought the only way to do archeology span was to do an arts degree. And funnily enough, I, although I'd always had a love for biology and a love for science, I had gone to Sydney University and you could only do science with chemistry physics and statistics and I had always thought that I wasn't smart enough to do physics or statistics and so I kind of ruled that out anyway and so I thought okay I'll go and do this archaeology but as one of my courses in that arts degree I chose um, first year biology they had warned me and said look you you won't be able to get into second year because you you're not doing a science degree but I did really well in first year. And so they let me into second year biology. So basically the course that I did was archaeology, biology for the first two years of that. Then I did, I did psychology for that first year, which I then dropped. 
and I did prehistory as well. I did second year biology, I did second year archaeology and second year prehistory, and then I had to drop biology away because I had no other science, and I did archaeology and prehistory. But by third year, I'd realised that I was pretty sick of prehistory. It wasn't, I, I had really hoped that it would be looking at early hominins and, and this sort of thing. And really it was just anthropology, which I wasn't as interested in. And I organised to do some cross-institutional study at Macquarie University, where I, I picked up paleontology instead. And so on my degree, it says prehistory plus cross-institutional study. But the cross-institutional study was this, um, this paleontology that I did at Macquarie. By the time I did all of that, I kind of realised that I didn't want to go on and do any more of that, you know. Um, I, it wasn't anything that had inspired me to any great degree at that point. So you would have probably done biology at that stage. Because of going to Sydney Uni, that wasn't an option. It's really interesting when we make those decisions based on what we first chose and we're too young to really know that we could actually just change university or something like that and change to what... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think, I think sort of, you know, these days, obviously, we're, we're so much more open to things like growth mindset, you know, and a lot of kids probably aren't as open to it as they should be, but I'm a massive, massive believer in that now because what had sort of been that block, that, that idea that I, I just had it in my head that I wasn't particularly good at mathematics and so on, and therefore I couldn't do statistics, I couldn't do physics, that, that, would, that wrote off the uh, science. Once I chose to really work at it, I ended up doing all right in it, you know, which is where mm -hmm. it led me to the PhD. So, yeah, eventually. Eventually, that's right. But as you say, it was that self-belief or lack thereof uh, that got in the way. Yeah. When you were doing that Bachelor of Arts, you know, you were saying you thought in year seven, oh, I'll know what I'm going to do at year 12. And then you, you finish the degree, but you're sort of thinking, well, I'm not going to continue that because it hasn't really you know, lit my fire. So did you have any plans then, even if they were vague ones? And did you seek any career development advice or anything like that? I did seek career advice, actually. I went to, they, they had a career service and they probably still do at Sydney University. And I went to see them and I sort of said, what can I do? You know, at, at that point, I was basically working as a storeman at David Jones in the city. Although I absolutely loved the workplace, great people to work with. They were fantastic. I knew it wasn't really pushing me, you know, sort of intellectually at all. And I sort of thought, you know, I want something a little bit more fulfilling. So I went along to the career advisors and they sort of said, oh, look, you know, um, what, what are your interests? And to tell you the truth, I wasn't even that aware of my interests back then. You know, I, I don't know whether I sort of lacked any self-reflection or whatever. I'm not sure. What they did say that, that really heartened me was that, look, the average person, and this, this was back in, this must have been about 1993 or something at this point, the average person changes their, their career seven times in their life. They said, so what you think you will like to do now is not what you will end up doing. The odds say that, you know, you'll be something completely different that you haven't even imagined at this point. And that, I found that really heartening because I sort of thought, well, that eased the pressure a great deal. Oh, well, this isn't so bad that I don't know exactly what I want to do. I can sort of roll for a bit longer with what I want to do, you know, what I'm finding enjoyable. And I will hopefully alight on something that I find really sort of enjoyable and rewarding and so on. Yeah. And look, that's the trouble with the very old fashioned 
view that you should know what you want to do, that there's some sort of burning ambition within us all. And, you know, some people never really get that because it's not a named thing. So for no. us in careers, we talk about, well, what are your interests? What are your values? What are your skills? What are your strengths? Skills can be developed, but those other things are often quite innate. But as you say, they shift over time. As you get to know yourself, you reflect on experiences and you make decisions then based on greater knowledge of yourself and your own experiences. So what did you do next? I had told myself that I didn't want to study again at that point. What I did was I got some... I suppose they were sort of stopgap jobs, you know, and I, I worked as a storeman at David Jones, as I say. Um, I worked as a storeman at a factory for a while. I worked in retail. I worked at Grace Brothers, formerly Grace Brothers, now Maya, um, in men's suits and formal hire and that sort of thing. I did that sort of stuff, but I interspersed that with travel got sick of kind of the same thing day after day after day. And so I traveled to, to the States with a mate and then to Europe just by myself and then went back and saved up more money and, and so on. And then that sort of storm and work. And then I ended up going around Australia in 1995, which was absolutely fantastic. And then came back, realized that I didn't want to do storm and work anymore, realized that it wasn't rewarding enough and got a job as a swimming teacher. And I really enjoyed that because I, I used to swim and I've always had a feel for the water. I always liked the idea of teaching. And, um, and so I ended up doing swimming teaching. And I did that for probably one summer. I was with the Department of Sport and Recreation at the time. And while I was doing that, parents of the kids would come up. A lot, a lot of the teachers are school teachers and they do it to earn a little bit more money over summer. And so most of the parents who'd bring their kids along to this thing assume that you're a teacher. And I got asked, are you a teacher? And I sort of said, no, 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 not at all. And they, a lot of them sort of said, well, you should be, you should do teaching because you've got a really good knack for it. And that's sort of what got me thinking bigger, bigger picture sort of thing at that point. And that then led you to go and do the dip ed and you chose to do primary teaching. Why did you do that? Why did you choose primary, not secondary at that stage? I've got a, actually a little story about that. Um, one, one of, I, I suppose it's best summed up by this little story. When I was in New Zealand, because um, I, I taught in New Zealand for a year, this is after I'd done it. This sums up why. I, I was standing at a bus stop waiting to catch a bus and there was a guy standing there in a school uniform, big, big fellow. He was probably about six foot three, absolutely built, and he was wearing a school uniform. And I thought, that's why I don't want to be a <laughs> picture <laughs> you know just the idea of having to deal with those big kids and I'm not a big guy and that was probably it plus I didn't really have at that point I didn't have a science degree so I didn't didn't have like a science specialty I didn't have mathematics in my degree I didn't have English in my degree I didn't have one of those um, what we call in, in teaching KLAs one of those key learning areas as part of my degree so I couldn't sort of focus on that you know, so it was more appropriate, I thought at the time, to do primary, really. Yep. And, and that does become a choice, as you say, because I've worked with undergrads like that who then do yeah. a debate and they haven't got that key learning area, as you say, and so they end up doing primary, which isn't always the best reason to do primary, no. um, and some of them discover that. So then you did do primary school teaching for a while. Yes. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I basically, I, I, I did my dip ed in 1997, 1998, I started 
in New South Wales, I was getting casual work and a friend of mine who had, she had, I had done my teaching with her and she had a job in New Zealand and she rang me up and she sort of said, um, oh, Danny boy, she always called me Danny boy. She said, why don't you come over to New Zealand? She said, you know, there's a job opening up at the school I'm at. Um, you know, we could be flatmates. This could be really, really good. And I, I liked the, I thought it would look good on my resume um, to, to have a full-time job pretty much the first year out from teaching. And so I thought, yeah, actually I will, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. And so I applied, I got the job and I started primary school teaching over there. And it was funny within the first, really, I would say three to six months, I realized that primary school teaching wasn't for me. Um, not that I did anything about it for a while, but um, I, I remember walking from a bus stop to school with, with my flatmate, whom, whom I'd gotten the job with, who's the one who talked to me about the job. And she was, she was sort of saying, oh, Danny boy, she said, I really feel like I found my calling with this. And I remember thinking, what on earth? I thought, <laughs> this is so far from my calling. You know, I, I sort of, I do not feel like this is my calling at all, but you know, it, it was a good job, but it just wasn't sort of right for me. And I stayed there for a year and then I came back to Sydney. I got uh, some casual work and then I got a, a job at a primary school in Granville, which was, which was fine. And then, um, yeah, and I, I was sort of feeling very demoralised, definitely three years in my, my teaching career at that point. I was feeling very demoralised at that point. And um, I had moved in with my then girlfriend, who is now my wife, and we're living at Coogee. And I was, I was working in Granville. She was working in Auburn. And so we had an hour and 20 minutes to talk, talk in the car every single time. And as I said earlier, I'd always been, a, a, you know, I'd love the water. Um, and I, as I say, I had done some, bio, some biology in my arts degree. And my wife knew that I very much loved that. And as we were driving home, she, she said, what about marine biology? And I remember sitting there and I, she said, you know, you love the water, you love biology. What about marine biology? And I thought, yeah, what about marine biology? And I, as we were driving along, the closer we got to home and we were living quite close to the beach at Coogee, it was almost like, and I'm not a religious man at all, but it was, it was like an epiphany. And it was sort of, oh, wow. Yeah, marine biology, that's what it is. At that point, I knew it was what I had to do. And so that day, I, we raced home. I went for a snorkel around um, Coogee, thinking this is what I'm going to do every day for the rest of my life as a marine biologist. <laughs> and then little did I know, which I'll talk about later, that it's nothing like that at all. And then from the next day, I just started looking as to where I could do marine biology, basically. And, and that's sort of what started off what was the next big chapter of my life, I think, yeah. And so that's a pretty big deal to actually go back and do a whole other undergraduate degree. And so you did do that Bachelor of Science. And so what was that experience like after that epiphany you described and then you were doing the undergraduate Bachelor of Science and how did you actually support yourself? Basically what I did was for the first couple of years, I just studied part-time because it was coursework. You, you could quite easily do that. Well, it wasn't easy, but I studied part-time. Yeah, so basically what happened was I started studying. I had permanent part-time work as a teacher and I would get every casual day that I could as a teacher to work. In addition to that, 
I was at the time living with my now wife and she was working full-time as a teacher as well. Then we, while that was happening, we had our first child and I had to go to full-time work because my wife had to take time off, obviously. And so it was once again, part-time work. But then when our firstborn was probably about 18 months old, my wife went back to work and then I started full-time university and we put our daughter in daycare. Obviously, everything changes when you're back at uni and you're in your, your sort of mid to late 30s compared to when you're there in your early 20s. So my, my marine science was in those mid to late 30s. And I wasn't there to party. I, I had, obviously, you know, my first degree, my arts degree was when I went in with the whole adage of P's get degrees, you know, and I did as little as possible, uh, but scraped through. And then with the with the marine science, I started to do well, you know, and I realised, you know, how much I'd wasted my time in my arts degree. Not, not with arts, not at all with arts, because I think that had definitely helped me, and there's no doubt about that. But the way I had approached that had been a waste of time for me. And I started to do well and I started to really, I, I just loved it to tell you the truth. I, I just loved the science and I loved the practicals involved. I just loved the thinking of science and sort of the, the designing of experiments and being able to conduct experiments and sort of analysing the data and all, all this kind of stuff. And just the, the deeper sort of thought one of my favorite courses was one that they don't offer at Macquarie University anymore it was called ecology and evolution and I had done that the, the only reason I had done that is because it worked out well in my timetable um, so I would I would be available at home and so on that was the only reason I'd done it and it ended up being the best course I've, I've ever done it was just fantastic it was just had it's really deep thoughts about how the process of evolution and you know how that impacts on ecology and how ecology impacts on evolution and oh, it was just brilliant absolutely brilliant and what a difference it must have been for you to feel like that because when you talk about your other decisions and they were good but they were sort of not really exciting you like this and not inspiring you and then going back to that New Zealand experience where your friend had said oh, I think I've found my calling and you're left wondering, thinking, really? <laughs> and now you're talking and you can even hear it now in your voice, uh, you know, these years later, discovery of that excitement and that inspiration within studying of science. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and as it, it was basically from when I was doing my first year subjects, do you know what? It was actually, in particular, it was a, a lecture by Dave Raftos from Macquarie doing um, biodiversity and conservation and he was standing there and he was giving this talk and I, I actually can't remember what it was about but it was so obvious that he, he he it was off the cuff and he had slides but he would get off on these tangents talk about something not necessarily related and then just come back to what we were talking about and he was so eloquent and I thought oh that's what I want to do that's what I want to be you know to, to be able to do that would just be phenomenal it was pretty much that moment that I thought, well, I've, I have to go on and do postgrad. You know, that, that, that's the only thing. That, that, that's the only thing I can do at this point. And that's when I made up my decision. And that, that, that was in 2006. So it's a long while to sort of get to the end of, of that decision and that process. It was 2006 that I made up my mind to do that. And it was strange for me at the time to have such a long-term goal because I, I hadn't really had long-term goals up until that point, really. I hadn't really had them. Yeah, I, look, I could talk for hours on, on the whole thing that sort of, uh, that, that sort of all these things that sort of made me realise that 
I actually was able to make long-term goals and able to stick to them and all this kind of stuff. There were so many things that changed in my life. I learned how to surf, which is such a steep learning curve and would be, if it was something that I had tried earlier on in my life, I probably would have given up. And it made me realise that I had the gumption to stick with things, you know. And I've said this to my wife, it was one of the first things that made me realise that actually if I work really hard at something, that there's this great payoff in the end, you know. And, and yes, it may take a long time, but it is worth the work. And so it was a combination of that and this newfound passion for science that, that sort of made me think, well, plans with, with a lot of effort can come to fruition. And that's sort of what, what sort of pushed me through, really, to tell you the truth. And it's true, isn't it? We're our own worst enemies, really. Yes. Because uh, it is that stickability and those people that just carry on. People don't become world-beating athletes by doing it occasionally on a weekend, you know. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. So true. Fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listening to you speak about those paths you've taken, it strikes me that over time you develop maturity, for one thing, but also the fact is you probably needed to have those experiences. Exactly what my colleagues at the Career Service at Sydney Uni said all those years ago really was that, you know, no one's going to be able to tell you this. You're going to have to live some life. You're going to have to have some experiences. You're then going to actually begin to reflect upon them and understand what it is that lights your fire and what doesn't. So yes. this is what you have done and you've learned to do that more and more. This will help you as a parent as well, obviously, and as a teacher. That capacity to examine your experiences and assess your thinking, these have helped you make these decisions. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. Look, basically, back when I was doing my, my bachelor's and I, I thought, well, the only thing I can do is research and, and teach at a university. That, that's the only option for me. That's all I can do. You know, I, I sort of sought out that PhD. And I, when, when I was in the midst of it, you sort of get stuck in what you're expected to do as a PhD. You know, you, you, you sort of get, well, okay, PhD leads to academia and academia, you know, you, you need to have all these publications, you have all these, and it's stressful. It is so stressful, you know, it's, and, you know, I, I know people who absolutely love it, but with, you know, that preconceived idea of what you're supposed to do in your head if you're not loving it it's, it's hard work it's really hard work and it it sort of it takes a while of putting up with that even though I'd had these self-realizations earlier you kind of get lost again in in that sort of that hard struggle you get lost in it and then I remember it was probably about a year to go of my PhD and funnily enough actually I was talking to a mate of mine in the lab and he, he said, you know, oh, Dan, he said, you know, what, what was it that, that made, you want to do, made you want to do marine biology? What, what made you want to do this PhD? And I said, you know what? And I told him that same story that I told you about my wife in the car and being a marine biologist and snorkeling around, around Coogee and thinking that this was, this was going to be me for the rest of my life. And I told him that story and I stopped and I said, and you know what, mate? I said, that was probably the last time I went snorkeling. I said, I haven't been once since. And he sort of laughed and he, he said, no, you're right. You're right. You know, that, it, that's not what it's about, is it? You know, it's all about research and profile and publications. Then that I realised that, you know, I, I found all that really stressful and it, it wasn't good because, you know, by this time I've got a wife and two kids and, you know, and the idea of putting them through that on a post postdoc wage as well and I'm not enjoying it anyway so it's not even worth it for me let alone for them 
Um, I thought, you know, it's, it's not fair. And I started to sort of think of, of other options. And, and at first of all, had this idea of running an ecology business where, you know, sort of once I had my PhD of running this ecology business that kids would come to and I'd teach them all about ecology and so on. And, and I thought, well, this would only be viable if I went and did some teaching again, you know, and obviously all my experience had been in primary schools. And so I thought, well, I've got to get a job as a high school teacher. And so I sort of thought, okay, I'll, I'll get a job as a high school teacher. And I have to admit at the time, I sort of thought, given my previous experience as a primary school teacher, um, I probably didn't work as hard as I should have as a primary school teacher. And I sort of thought, well, this will be a nice break after the PhD because it's just such a hard slog. Plus you get the holidays. And I sort of thought that'll be pretty cool. And I put out my application. I thought, wow, I'm going to get snapped up. I've got teaching experience. I've got a PhD in biological sciences. If any school doesn't want me, they're crazy. They're crackers. I put out my application to a number of schools, got very little back, very little back. And there was a school out here in Western Sydney where we're near Parramatta called Parramatta Marist. And I'm sure if anyone from education is listening, they've probably heard of Parramatta Marist because it's an incredibly innovative school. It's all project-based, problem-based, flipped learning. It's all these innovative educational pedagogies. And they advertise. And I thought, okay, I'll apply for them. And they were the only ones who got back to me and they said, yep, would you come in for an interview? And it was just absolute, absolutely fortuitous. I, I got the job and that's where I'm working now. This job is without a doubt the best job I've ever had. I feel absolutely, I'm just trying to think, buoyed, I suppose, every time I, I go to work, you know, I, I sort of, it's, it's a great place to work. The, the students are fantastic. Like they're, they're just good kids. The other teachers are phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. They, I've never worked in a staff room and I've worked in a lot of staff rooms and I've never worked in a staff room where everyone is so dedicated to bringing out the best in these students, you know, and it's, it's absolutely invigorating and it's just uplifting to work in the place. And any idea of this business, this ecology business, I, I sort of, I couldn't think of anywhere better to work than where I am now at the moment, you know, and obviously my, my life is a testament to the fact that things change. Um, and you know, that that's possible at some point, I suppose, but I can tell you, I, I've, I've never had such job satisfaction where I am, you know, it's just fantastic. You're now where your friend was in New Zealand. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And in fact, I, I think I'm beyond where she was. Like I sort of, you know, it, it's, it's beyond my calling. It's just sort of, it's just, it's home, you know, it's just fantastic. I love it. You've talked a little bit about the school being project-based and problem-based learning, flipped learning, a whole range of different ways of teaching and innovative ways. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about that? What excites you about your colleagues and the students and what you feel you're giving them? Okay, what excites me about it? I think it's the whole idea that it's, it's student-centred, you know, which I think students get the most out of student-centred things, you know, and that's one of the things that sort of why I was keen to apply to this one and thank heavens I got the job too. I had thought back to courses that I'd done in my, my bachelor's of marine science and courses that I'd sort of tutor and, and teach in at, at university. And they were basically ones that are project based to them. And so ecology in particular, where I, I had done the second year course with Mel Bishop at the time. And the first assignment you do is one where you go out into the bush and you observe things 
and you come back and you design your own study as to how you can try to get to the bottom of these things that you've observed. And then the main study, the, the ultimate study is towards the end where you decide once again on your own study design, what the organisms you're looking at, the communities you're looking at, and you design everything from, you know, the sampling techniques and stuff. And that had been one of my most engaging courses apart from ecology and evolution the ecology course had been most engaging and that's basically what project based you know that that's the ultimate in project based and and so it sort of there are a number of things that excite me about it one is that, that it's student centered two is that it's kind of based in the real world too so you 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 give these students real world world projects that incorporate an integration of subject areas, you know, of KLAs. Okay, you might be doing ecology and with some mathematics, say, and it's, a, it's an integration of ecology and mathematics in year seven, so science and mathematics. And you might be getting them to design an ecotourism resort where you need to look at all the ecology of the area, look to see, where, and they get given different areas. Look at the ecology of the area, report on the ecology of the area, but also look at the finances of the area and how you would make this a profitable business. And so you integrate those subjects together and the kids have this real world base, you know, which is absolutely fantastic. That shows, wow, these graphs that we use in science, they look kind of like the ones we use in mathematics. Isn't that funny? Instead, they're actually using those same graphs in mathematics mathematics and science and realizing that they do the same thing, which is pretty cool. So that's the project based. The problem based, I think is, is even better. And it's basically you give them a problem that they have to solve and it's far quicker turnaround and it's exciting. And so the way we do it at our school is we have this thing called flipped problem based. And so we flip the content. So they have to go home and they, for their homework, they will learn all the content that is required for the problem. The following lesson, we apply a lot of that knowledge. And so you might give them a 15-minute tutorial. We have very long lessons at Parramatta Maris. They're 100 minutes. And so you might give them like a 15-minute tutorial and then you go in to do a practical on, on that same thing. Then the following lesson is 200 minutes long. So it's a double. And for instance, the one that we did recently was, and this was to do with cell membrane structure. There are three patients who enter a room into, into a different doctor's surgery. There are a list of symptoms. The students get those symptoms. They have to, from those symptoms, try to diagnose what condition these patients may have. And the condition has something to do with cell membrane structure. Or it might be that the cell membrane has a loud virus in, or the cell membrane is expelling a lot of salt out of the cell instead. And so the result of that is uh, these symptoms. And they have to diagnose that. And then they have to come up with some solution to this, which involves cell membrane structure. So how would they modify the cell membrane structure so that the, the patient no longer has this? But they also have to keep in mind that any modification they make may end up completely mess up the function of the cell and they have to think about how that may, may change the function of the cell. So they have these big problems, you know, that, that they have time to solve and then they, they work on that. It's highly engaging for the students. They are very uncomfortable at the start of a problem because it's meant to make them uncomfortable so that it sort of inspires them to learn a little bit, learn that more deeply. And then, yeah, and it, it's fantastic. The, the boys are always always highly engaged, you know, which is fantastic. So when I say the boys, it's because it's an all boys school. Like uh, it's not just boys who are engaged in this, it's because it's an all boys school. So yes, I can see what excites you about this role. 
What do you feel that all of those experiences that we've talked about, that right from the Bachelor of Arts right through to the PhD and now as a teacher, how do you feel all of those things have sort of woven together to really equip you for this role? All of them together. I, I, how have they wormed together? I, I think every single step has sort of enabled me to reflect better on where I'm at. At each step, I've been able, I've been better at reflecting for one thing. They've all helped me to think clearly, particularly the PhD, you know, sort of, it, I think that that's the most important thing that the PhD has done is it's just taught me how to think as a scientist, um, not just as a scientist, just in general life, you know, to sort of be able to analyse things thoroughly and properly. I don't want to put off people who haven't done a PhD, but I, I don't think you can get that really until you've done a PhD, you know. Other people surely can. My wife can. She's got a number of masters, but she doesn't have a PhD. But I wouldn't have been able to without the PhD is probably a better way to say that, actually. I, I just think, I look at it all, it's kind of, it's all just meshed together to, to sort of, to lead me to where I am, you know, sort of, it was that, that interest in sort of science of archaeology, you know, and obviously paleontology is a full-on science, but that sort of science of archaeology that started me going into the marine science that obviously really lit my fire for science and sort of thought, this is where I have to go, that led me into the PhD that made me reflect even more so as to what I would like to do. The teaching, you know, that was sort of, uh, that ended up being my saving, you know, it was the teaching that I had done. So that was sort of what saved me and put me where I am now. Because I, I can tell you, if I had been applying for jobs without a dip ed, I wouldn't have been getting them at all. And I don't think there would have been any way after doing a PhD that I would have felt like going around and doing a dip ed afterwards, you know, or a master's of teaching or whatever you need these days. I wouldn't have wanted to end up where I am now with this place, you know, which sort of incorporates all of it. It's just fantastic. And, you know, it was that long-term goal all started because I started surfing, you know, and it sort of, it all just interweaves, you know, it's, it's fantastic. You know, I, I feel really, really lucky. And you know, it's interesting, I'm glad you brought that up because there is actually a lot of research around luck, serendipity and planned happenstance. And so the planned happenstance is something will happen and that will lead you to some planning and then something else will happen and shift that plan. But it is all about having a plan, but being open and reflective and then moving to a different path if that suits you better. And, and really you've embodied that, I feel. I hope so. People are often surprised when I tell them the roundabout way that I've ended up where I am, you know, that a lot of the teachers who are at the school, the younger ones, they say, wow, what is it you haven't done, you know, to, you know, to be where you are. I feel really lucky to be in that position. I do feel lucky that I've had such a wealth of life experience to, to be where I am. And I think you can't knock life experience. It's pretty cool. I think of Linda Beaumont in biology. She's one of the, um, you know, one of the academics in biology. I remember talking to her. You know, she had left school in year 10, working in retail when, when she was a teenager. And she is one of the smartest, most intelligent people I've ever met. And, and I just sort of think that's such a big journey from retail to, to academia. And there are these people around us who have made these journeys. I sort of, I've made a bit of a journey myself too. I feel really pleased to be where I am because of that journey. You mentioned life experience and you can't knock it. That is something great about getting older, isn't it? <laughs> in that capacity to reflect that you can't give anyone, as I was saying before, the people in the career service those years ago, they recognised that. They thought he's not there yet. He's going to have to live a little bit more. 
Yeah, I think you're right. You're going to help a lot of these boys that you work with, not only in their education, but because you can share those experiences and not be able to put, you know, an old head on young shoulders to actually help them also feel comfortable about uncertainty and feeling that it's okay not to have an absolute plan that is concrete and immovable. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one, one of the things that I like to share with the boys in particular is basically how important perseverance and hard work are, you know, uh, like in particular, when I was younger, and I didn't think I was up to statistics and so on. And I, I purposely didn't do a science degree because of that reason. You know, I was always intimidated by all these people who seemed so much smarter around me and sort of thought, well, they're, they're so intelligent, you know, they're able to do this and blah, blah, blah. That, that, that's not really for me because I'm not that smart. And what I always tell the boys, always tell them, I say, boys, it is not to do with smarts. If, if you work really hard and you persevere, you will succeed in what you set your mind to. And still, I, I don't think of myself as being overly intelligent. And I feel that I got to where I got with PhD and then on to where I am teaching and, and so on at school through hard work. You know, I just feel like I slogged my guts out for it, you know, which it's something that the younger me would never have thought I would have done. So it's that perseverance and hard work, I think, that, that are really important too. That's what I want the boys to get. It's really great messages and certainly I hope anyone currently in a Master of Research or PhD listens to that and understands. But also the other part that you really touched on a lot throughout your story is the fact that you listened to yourself. When you started to feel that something wasn't right and it wasn't fitting you and it feels like such hard work, when you found that joy, you understood how you hadn't had that previously. And that's one other great message I think that you're saying is you set your mind upon something that you were excited about and then you worked hard. But to work hard when you're not enjoying it is no sort of life. It's hard going. If, if you're not enjoying it, it's very hard to work hard. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been wonderful. Enjoyed talking to you. And I think that the boys at Marist are really lucky to have you. I feel very lucky to be there. And thank you very much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. You have just listened to an episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast about the career and employment experiences of high degree researchers that is, Master of Research, PhD and Professional Doctorate candidates, graduates and others in the HDR ecosystem. You can also find me on Twitter as Resourceful HDR and on LinkedIn, Sally Purcell at Macquarie University. Macquarie University students and staff can also access the HDR Professional Development iLearn site. Mm-hmm.